1: Well, I've got Matt Ruby on today, and Matt is a comedian, writer, and filmmaker from New York City. You may have seen him on Comedy Central, MTV, NBC, and Fox. In his latest special, which is fantastic, Substance is called Substance on YouTube. He performs four sets and four nights: one high on the pot, one drunk, one sober, and one high on the shrooms. I discovered Matt, though I've been li- I've been to his newsletter. The Rube's letter for, I don't know, three or four years now, where he writes about comedy, writing, and life. It's a great newsletter. Must read for anybody who wants to learn about comedy and how comedians think. I'm going to bring him out right now. It's Matt Ruby. Matt. Hey. Hey, thanks so
0: much. Appreciate
1: you having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. I want to get, I kind of want to get into your newsletter first, simply because that's how I discovered you and... It's one of those, you know, some people put out newsletters and some people put out newsletters with a lot of thought to them. And I think yours is the latter. It's almost like, uh, I know you're sharing some things that are already out there, but putting your own words to it, it's actually inspired me quite a few times. How long have you been doing that?
0: Well, thanks. Yeah. It's probably been about three years or so that I've been going, you know, sort of intensely on it during pandemic. I think when pandemic started, I was looking for, you know, non-stage related, you know, ways to output my thoughts and ideas. And Uh and the newsletter seemed like a great fit.
1: How do you find, how do you find some of the stuff that you get there? Are you like, do you have like, they used to call them web crawlers out there. Do you have stuff out there that that just feeds you some of the articles and stuff that you find that you can comment on?
0: No, I think it's probably just via people that I either follow or subscribe to or, you know, you know, friends will sometimes share interesting stuff with me that winds up in the newsletter. But yeah, I'm kind of, you know, my thinking on it is always like, what's the kind of stuff that I would share with a friend of mine who I think is cool or interesting or smart or funny? And like, you know, how do you take those kind of conversations that might happen, you know, over lunch or via text message and broadcast it to, you know, a wider audience in a way that, you know, maybe... People who are aligned can find you and subscribe and stay tuned.
1: Yeah, it's really good. There was one that came out, it was maybe three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, that really spoke to me because I didn't start comedy until I was 52. And I felt like by the way I look and by my age that I should be a clean comedian. And You posted one and there was a clip of Bill Burr talking about how, you know, leaning into the clean comedy can actually be disingenuous and make you worse on stage because you're not being yourself. And I've decided since then, and I moved from South Bend, Indiana down to Huntsville. And when you're making changes like that, you kind of look at everything in your life. And I was looking at my comedy. I'm like, you know, I know I'm okay, but I'm just not being the person I want to be up there. So I've changed. And it's not like I'm out there, you know, saying fuck and cunt like a million times. I just, I just am leading into more what I am. And, you know, I cuss a lot as a regular person. And I also have viewpoints that are a little above, a little different than a PG thirteen, you know, I, that one was one. I actually, because I think there was video attached to it, and I watched it a couple times. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm doing the right thing here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's about being authentic. If you can unify who you are on stage and off stage as much as possible, I think the audience can kind of smell that authenticity. So if you're someone who doesn't curse at all, and then you're on stage trying to like hump the stool and do all that kind of stuff, it'll seem misaligned but like same the opposite way if you curse all the time and then you come out and try to be squeaky clean and you know i think it's just kind of weird in general if you're like that and yeah it's you know be who you really are as much as possible i think with stand-up anyways is the ideal i mean obviously we exaggerate and you're you're maybe a more cartoonish version of yourself but yeah it should still be based in whatever the real version of you is
1: i think yeah for sure so in doing a newsletter like this because i subscribe to quite a few of them if if a comedian was to do this, you know, this is kind of a teaching show about comedy. If a comedian was to do something like this and they put it out, you know, weekly, monthly, monthly or whatever, what type, since you've been doing it for as long as you have, what type of results do you get from that as far as like an expanded fan base or fans that interact with you more? You know, what are the benefits you reap from a newsletter like that? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think the biggest thing is that like showing up in people's inbox once a week is, you know, one of if not the best ways to actually keep in touch with someone and to have like an ongoing dialogue or whatever you want to call it without having to rely on the algorithm or social media platforms or you know, feel like, you know, half the time when I'm posting on social media, I feel like I'm working for Mark Zuckerberg or the Chinese government or something. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think anytime you can have that, you know, more personal one-on-one relationship that's not being mediated by some tech company or some corporate entity, that's going to be valuable. I'd say the other, like Patreon, I think is also, which I don't personally have a Patreon, but I think that's another those. The model of like, how do you interact directly with your fans without there being a middleman is going to be is really valuable for a variety of reasons. And, you know, just not relying on these social media platforms because, you know, you could have been really big on Vine or, you know, MySpace or something else. But like they have a way of fading away, too. So I think. To me, that's the biggest thing, and also it's. A, I think it's more of an ongoing dialogue, you know, as opposed to social media where you're constantly showing up in front of random people. I feel like with the newsletter, it's I'm having a conversation with the people who subscribe, and they kind of know me and or get to know me over time, and it's like there's context built in, and you know, I'm just a fan of that as far as like as opposed to like being, you know, some brand new thing that no one knows who the hell you are. And then all of a sudden you're talking about like death or psychedelics or meditation or, yeah. you know, dating or whatever other weird stuff, you know, might come out of you and they're like, I don't even know who you are. It's nice to have that that built in context. It's almost like doing an hour of stand up versus doing 10 minutes. You can go different places with an audience because they get to know you. I'd say there's something similar with the whole newsletter approach of like people get to know you over time and you can kind of go on a ride with them.
1: Yeah. And, you know, this is ticky tack stuff, but you use Substack and a lot of the folks that I subscribe to use Substack and a lot of folks don't. So almost everybody that doesn't use Substack goes into my spam, the first one, and sometimes subsequent ones. Substack always gets through and it's... You know, the first time, and you have to confirm your subscription and all that kind of stuff. But I always wondered how, and I'm in IT for my real life, so I've always wondered how, you know, places like Substack can, you know, maintain that pristine reputation so that they make it to the inbox instead of the spam box all the time.
0: Yeah, I mean I I don't know how the spam gods work specifically, but it m- maybe because you accepted, you know, that originally some Substacks and then like it just is like, oh, he's okay with Substack stuff moving forward. But also they I do feel like in general Substack is pretty on the ball about like navigating stuff like that and like the back end is very easy to use and you know, they have this whole recommendation sort of system within the platform and mm-hmm. Seems like they're pretty on the ball in general. There's also, you know, they make money when you make money. You know, the incentives are aligned for them to, right? you know, get you in front of as many people as possible.
1: Yeah, for sure. Let's dig into the special now because I know that, first of all, it was a lot of work to put that together because you're not just, you're not just filming an hour. You're filming over an hour and several different shows. What was the idea behind it to get you started on doing this? What prompted you to do this? with the four different mats out there?
0: I mean, it was a variety of things. I had some material I wanted to release. I wanted to do something different that might stand out that wouldn't be, you know, every other special. I am a big fan of, you know, shrooms and weed, and I thought it would be interesting to perform on them in a way that I haven't before, see how that goes. And yeah, I think also, you know, just from an experiment standpoint to be like, I guess there's a lot of stand-up specials that I feel like you watch for like 10 minutes and you're like, yeah, all right, I got it. And whereas with this one, I thought there was sort of like a built-in narrative of like, you know, you want to see what's going to happen next. So like each, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, there's like a whole new mode happening. And, you know, it's nice to have that sort of hook all along the way of like, well, I got to see where this go- ha- goes next. And yeah, it was definitely like a huge project. Like we wound up with like over over nine hours of footage because we filmed documentary stuff from each day too. And so the editor, Anthony Verderon, I did like an incredible job of kind of winnowing that down uh-huh. into something that was consumable and tight and had a whole flow to it. And the director, Matt Salakuse, also did like an amazing job, I think, of pushing it into, you know, it, it is a stand-up special, but there's also some more philosophical stuff and some deeper thoughts. And I think he was, one thing I appreciate is how he kind of kept pushing me to go in that direction a little bit and to make it maybe a little more depthful than just your typical stand-up special. So it's got this sort of like, jackass like stunt dynamic to it and it's got like a good stand-up comedy dynamic to it and then it's also got sort of like a deeper philosophical more mindful sort of angle to it so I like that it's combining all those things
1: right and that's kind of what you are I mean you're more of a philosophical type guy and your humor reflects that so it came out well in the show so in looking back at it I know it's hard to watch yourself but in looking (laughs) back what segment was your favorite? I think
0: my favorite was the shrooms. I think the best set is the sober one. High, I think I was just so high that I was a little like paranoid and worried about like what was happening. I think it went, it was fine. And then I think alcohol was far and away the worst and like painful. And like the good thing I can say about the alcohol, which is in the special, even when I am super hammered. I say, I don't think that went well, but I think it was good TV. So I think (laughs) I knew at least what the ultimate goal of it all was, which was like trying to make a good film and creating like something that was captivating, which I think it was. I just don't know. I'm not uh, especially proud of what transpired on stage during that set. But I think it's good that at least one of them went off the rails and, you know, kind of gives you context for the other ones.
1: So I love that there's learning moments. Every guest I've had on, Usually has a learning moment. And in that special, I think every open micer should watch the drunk section before they have six beers before they're set.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, the incredible thing is how in my head I thought I was doing well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Th- that's <laughs> which there were pockets of like, I got some laughs and there were pockets of stuff, but it's like, it's really amazing how the alcohol. Brain can like kind of trick you into thinking there's a reality going on that like once you're on the outside of it you're like oh god what was i thinking
1: yeah yeah and like you the shrooms was my favorite set because i just felt like you were just opening yourself up for everybody in the crowd and connecting with people so which is you know kind of what shrooms should do but the high one the one on the pot it just reminds me of every time I've been just a little bit too high. And the, you know, not understanding the passage of time because it's going so much slower in your head than it's actually going. And then the little bit of the AD thing where you've got a thought and then you go into another thought. I think everything was, I don't want to say stereotypical, but it's anybody who's experienced it kind of understands where you're at at each section of the special
0: (laughs) yeah and i think the weed one kind of sets up the other ones to come because that one's first and yeah i think there's also with each one of these things i really wanted to go for it i didn't want to just like have a hit of a joint or like two drinks i was like look if you're going to do this you actually have to go for it and so for the weed one because i definitely have performed high before i don't think i've ever performed that high before. And yeah, I think there was a little bit, it was also, I think we were figuring out the project because it was the first one, but I think there was a little bit of, in my head of like, okay, let's just stay on the rails here. Let's not, let's like, I think I was so high that I was just, not that I was panicky, but I was just more like, okay, well just, just do what you do and keep it on the rails and get through this. And so I think it was fun, but I, you know, in retrospect, I think like, oh, it, you know, it, they, you know, throughout all these sets, there's this constant balance of. Like, how much do I want to do prepared material? How much do I want to, like, stick to the script versus how much do I just want to be in the moment and, like, kind of go with the flow of wherever these various substances are taking me? And so I think that was, like, sort of an ongoing wrestling match. And so I think with the high one, I was very much stick to the script. With the alcohol one, I was very much like, oh, just do whatever. And then Mm -hmm. I think from there, then I began calibrating of, like, okay, well, I think maybe... what I most want to do is weave between those two dynamics. And I sometimes I want to stick to the script and sometimes I just want to be in flow and go where that takes me. And I think you see that in, in the back half in the shrooms and sober sets. There's a little more of that. Okay, there's good jokes here and it's funny. And then there's also moments where it's like, oh, this, is, this seems a little more thoughtful or is definitely something that just happened in the room in the moment. And you get, you know, like an interesting sort of variety of modes of how you can do stand up. And also I think, Part of it, too, is like that it is a club show in New York City in a small room in front of an audience that doesn't know they're being filmed for a special, doesn't know anything about it until the host brings me up on stage. And so I think all those elements kind of create sort of like this raw sort of like unusual dynamic for a stand up special.
1: Uh huh. Now, you established early on in the special that you as a normal comedian who's been doing this for years that you obsess over your material you obsess over your sets and you want perfection and in getting out of that losing control a little bit by by doing the substances and stuff like that did you learn anything from it did you get takeaways where you don't obsess quite as much or you you feel a little bit more comfortable going up not knowing exactly what you're going to say
0: yeah, I mean, I think I've always, or not always, at least for a while, have known that like, yeah, if you're too much of a control freak about stand up, it, it can be a little off putting, you know, it's just you also kind of want to be like a real human being up there and in the moment. But yeah, I think there's some aspect of, you know, I think it's good to obsess about your material and to like. Be ready to go with like an exact, you know, whatever you want to do, but then also be willing to just drop that if something in the moment leads towards something that's funny or different or unique, as opposed to just constantly being like, nope, I got to get back to my script. This is what I'm doing. Cause I think that can just kind of come off as robotic. Excuse me. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I think, yeah, I think for me, it's just sort of um, a big part of stand up is like event, like jokes and all and what you write are obviously key but then also it's like just you as a human being and are you vibing with the audience are they aligned with you are you having a good time to, does everyone feel like we're in this together and how much that really matters too so there's almost like this maslow's hierarchy of confidence which i think on the bottom levels people need to be able to hear you the stage should be well lit they need to feel like you know what you're doing they need to think feel confident in the environment and that's at the bottom rung and then you know then there's like actually like liking you as a performer and as a person and being aligned with you and vibing with you in that way and then on top of that it's like having great jokes or hopefully great jokes that really you know have a good point and are funny too and like I think you know the pinnacle of comedy is when you can you know accomplish all that yeah you know be in an environment where the audience gets to like climb the pyramid all the way to the top.
1: (laughs) And it's a rite of passage for comedians to be able to make that transition to be from totally on book to being in the moment. And it's a learned, it's a learned thing. You have to do a stage time in order to get there. It's not something you can take a class or watch a video or something like that. And it seems to come at different points for a lot of comedians, but the ones that can, it's not necessarily improv, but be in the moment. You know, if something happens in the audience, they can work with it. Or if a certain line of jokes is not going the way they should, you can comment on it and make a joke about that and stuff like that. And it just seems like you you have to put the time in To in order to get to that place and there's no substitute for actually performing to get better at being a performer
0: yeah I think a lot of newer comics make a mistake of thinking that's the way to go and like yeah I think it's I don't know the analogies I think of I'm not comparing myself to Miles Davis in any way but like you know I think if you want to be like Miles Davis for you Also, you need to first know how to play scales and play in a traditional sense before you start trying to break all the rules and go fusion stuff. Or maybe in figure skating, you got to learn, or basketball, you got to learn the fundamentals before you can, you know, turn into, like, you're doing a triple sow cow or being Steph Curry or (laughs) whatever the right analogy is here. I think you get (laughs) it. But, like, yeah, I think, you know... Also, a lot of comedians who seem like they're just winging it or in the moment are actually doing stuff that they've written and just making it seem natural. And so I think you got to factor that in, too. So I think, yeah, it can be a bad path for people who think like, I'm just going to go on stage and wing it. We'll see what happens. And like, you know, to me, it's be open to moments like that and be willing to follow interesting stuff that does arise, but also, you know. Foundation of being a great stand-up, I think, is having good material and jokes that you prepare, and a point of view, and stuff that you want to say, and stuff that gets laughs that you know you're honing. And so, I think you know the ideal is to kind of bring all that together.
1: Yeah, and you're really preparing yourself for like three different scenarios: everything's going to go great, everything's going to go terrible, or you're just going to be right in the middle and you want to break out of that. You want to get it to great. And those scenarios, first of all, you have to realize that they're there, that you're not going to resonate with every audience out there and you're not going to get that one person that starts the whole laugh train going or something like that. But you have to, you, you have, like you said, you have to have the material ready in order to be that person on stage and then get the performance right to match it. It's almost like equations to get everything right on stage and be a decent comedian.
0: Yeah. I mean, and also it's like you can overthink this stuff. I mean, just keep getting up, and over time the audience teaches you what's right. For you who what resonates you know with your onstage persona and gets laughs and I think you just keep following that like that's the nice thing about stand-up is we have this sort of obvious measurement of success that's you know like y- you know when you're doing well and you know when you're not yeah and so it's, <laughs> just keep doing it and keep trying to steer towards the doing well and away from the not
1: yeah yeah <laughs> So what got you into performing stand-up in the first place? Because you seem like a guy who could have done a lot of different things. <laughs> done a lot
0: of different yeah. things. So, yeah, I really wanted to tell the truth and I realized comedians got away with it more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. So that kind of fascinated me. And then I moved to New York and there was all kinds of like interesting, cool like comedy shows going on in the East Village where I was living. And so checking those out kind of put the bug in me and then I tried it. And then it was sort of, it was like, a rabbit hole that I fell into. I, I feel like it's like ivy that just, you know, oh, it's just one vine growing up a wall. And then all of a sudden you look back a couple of years and the entire wall is covered in ivy. And then you're like, wait, I think I am ivy now. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, I love, you know, I, it comes out in the special a little bit. I think there's also as we, excuse me, as we become more and more glued to our phones and online life, I think there's more and more value to, you know, what stand up provides, which is like People in a room together not looking at their phones and like listening and laughing and being joined together and I think you know that's a big appeal to me versus you know like I also like writing but sometimes that's just staring at a screen for hours upon hours so like I think just the humanity of stand-up is something that I gravitate to and it's fun I mean you know when you're you know I think I've got stuff that I want to say. I like making people laugh, and if I can do all that and everyone's happy and I'm getting paid, then I feel like it's what could be better.
1: Do you feel like there's a more of a demand for in-person stand-up comedy?
0: Than you know, like years l- ago? L- l- let's mean? say
1: pre-pandemic.
0: I think, yes, I think at pandemic people were just pent up and want to go out and be around other people. I think that's definitely... Something that's been going on. I also think I don't want. To, I feel like it's cliche to comedians talking about cancel culture is like a tiresome conversation. But I do think there's some element of the more everywhere else in the world feels like an HR department, the more valuable stand-up comedy and a stage in a room where people can say anything becomes just uh-huh. from a supply and demand standpoint. And I think uh, there's a lot of fear for like speaking you know completely openly in other areas of life so then when people can go to like a comedy club and hear you know someone say shit that they could never say at work I think there's definitely some appeal to that
1: yeah and when you talk about social media it seems like comedians are using social media more than ever and yet people who are on social media are trying to turn it off more You know, I
0: I don't think think it's working though.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. A lot of people I talk to and the, there is absolutely no substitute. So if you watch a TikTok or a reel or whatever of you doing 30 seconds of hilarious stuff, there's no substitute without of that as opposed to being in the club and seeing the whole set. There's just, there's no comparison between the two. And I'm hoping that audiences realize that, that what they're seeing is like the commercial for Matt Ruby that makes them want to go to the show. And that's what I hope happens.
0: Yeah, I think you got to view it more as like a discovery tool for like people who would never find out about you being able to discover you or people who don't, a lot of people don't go to comedy clubs or comedy shows or at least not regularly. So like people who might not show up can have a window into what you do. And then, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's Andrew Schultz. I think heard I heard use this analogy, which stuck with me, which is basically like, yeah, like, and I'm paraphrasing now, but like you, what you want is for everyone to come sit in your living room. But like what you've got to do is just keep putting up windows all over the place that lets them Mm -hmm. climb in. So every podcast you do, every social media clip you post, every like Thing you put on YouTube is another way that some, it's another window that someone can like look in and see what you're doing and decide if they want to come in and get more. So I think I, I just try to view it that way. But yeah, certainly I'd much rather someone comes experiences, you know, a live set where I'm performing, you know, yeah, as opposed to just some 30 second clip online. But yeah, um, sometimes you got to go where the eyeballs are.
1: Yeah, Yeah, no doubt. And it's just like music. I mean, you know, there's no comparison between listening to an album and seeing them live, you know. Uh, you know, I you know I love live shows, and I only listen to the album so I can get ready for the live show. You know, so that's you know that's exactly the same. So you are so being in New York. There's what like thirty million comics in New York right now. Feels like it, yeah, yeah. What? So first of all, do you feel like stand-up comedy? is a meritocracy or do you feel <laughs> like some people get legs up that that shouldn't get it and some people get left behind that are funny and should be seen more I mean
0: I think short run sure like I don't think it's always a meritocracy I think especially if you're talking about industry stuff a lot of times it's they're thinking more like a casting agent than they are a stand up comedy critic thing but i think over the long haul like quality does win out i think people notice if you know for a long period of time you're doing sustained good work It just not you know like there there might not be a lot of shortcuts and there definitely are really funny people who wind up not succeeding or you know for whatever reason and i think also i think the longer you do it the more you realize how much it's not just being funny it's also being professional how much of it is like how hard you work nowadays i think the equation has shifted to a lot of you know podcasting and you know posting clips to social media and you know it's almost feels like that's half the job now is being like a you know a social media agency that's working for yourself or something you know i think uh, so i think overall fairly a meritocracy but also you can get lost and i think hard work is hard work sustained over an extended period of time is probably the most important ingredient. I think yeah. this micro Mike, Mike Birbiglia. I heard say once, like you'll get everything that you deserve. It'll just happen seven years later than you think it should.
1: <laughs> That's very accurate. Yeah, I, I definitely like that quote. So have you ever written for anybody else? Have you ever like ghost written for comedians or anything like that?
0: No, I mean I've written like video content and stuff where I've cast comedians who have acted out stuff, but I've never actually written stand-up material for anyone else, other than like you know occasionally give people an idea for a tag or something mm-hmm. like that.
1: Talk talking about that, so I've been um, participating in writers' workshops, and it's been very eye-opening because you get so into a joke that you got blinders on and you can't see where it could go or if it's just not funny, if it's just, if it just isn't going to work. Do you ever, do you have like a group of people that you can trust that you bounce jokes off of?
0: Yeah, sometimes not as much as I used to, but like a writing session where, you know, meet up with another comic for like, you know, coffee or something before a show and run over ideas for bits that can be helpful. Definitely have people who all send a text message, you know, is this something and throw out an idea. And, but yeah, like also you never like, all that stuff is like, you never really know until you start doing it in front of crowds. So I feel like, you know, the if you've got an idea, the quicker you get it to the stage to see if it's really got legs, the better off you'll be. Cause it's like, if you start falling in love with your masterpiece joke idea without ever telling it to people, you're frequently in for a rude awakening, which is the part that you thought was hilarious. They don't care about and often like, you know, oh, there's some throwaway line and they're like, oh, that's the funny part. And you're like, really? I didn't even know. But like, you know, I think that's part of what's cool about standup is like the audience is kind of teaching you all along. You know, you have a lot of theories uh-huh. and then the audience is teaching you, yeah, that theory, you're onto something and that theory, no, you really have no idea what you're talking about.
1: It's funny you talk about throwaway lines. That's one of the things that I'm really consciously trying to incorporate in, into my act because people who do it well just it either accentuates the punch so much so you, you're the laugh is starting to die down from the punch just a little bit and you do the throwaway line and then it, it ramps right back up into even more of a laugh than it was for the punch and some people can do that so well and but then I think if I'm trying to do it consciously then Am I really in the moment? Am I really being a comedian when I'm trying to write in a throwaway line?
0: I mean, well, what do you do? How are you defining a throwaway line? Because what you just said I, it sounds to me like just like a tag to a punchline. Yeah, why would that be a throwaway? I my, guess would be my question.
1: Yeah, my favorite throwaway lines are really kind of at the end of a joke. So it, it's like, you know, this lady ran into me with her grocery cart and I, I don't even have a punchline here. And <laughs> everything went bad and throwaway line is I forgot beans or something like that. You know, just something at the end of it that just they're already laughing and then you throw that in and it just propels the laughter forward. I mean,
0: that sounds like a good tag to me. Like I, like <laughs> to me, it's if, if it's getting laughs, I don't see it as a throwaway line. Yeah, I think it's like, like, yeah, if it's working and keep doing it. <laughs> keep yeah. Yeah. Advice. Yeah.
1: It's, it, it's weird. I've just seen some, some comedians that just do it so well and it's kind of like gaffigan's when he does the Mm. kind of almost getting out of the act and looking at it from outside you know this is how somebody might see me but not exactly like that because i don't want to be gaffigan you know it's it's you know i don't i don't want to be a lookalike or a sound like a gaffigan but yeah it's just something i've been working on and like you i obsess over stuff and it's I I'm always like, okay, what can I put in here? What can I do to make this extra?
0: <laughs> right. Well, I mean, like the Gaffigan voice, like, is amazing, and obviously I get why you wouldn't want to copy that specifically, but I think there's something underneath that, you know, all comedians can take from it, which is what he's doing is like acknowledging what some portion of the audience is thinking at that moment Yeah, and anytime you can preemptively acknowledge or point out something that like they were already thinking and like identify it and label it, I think it's a, uh, it builds affinity and it also builds confidence amongst the audience. Cause like, Oh, I was thinking exactly that. And he knew it. Like, it's almost like, Oh, this guy knows what we're thinking too. And is like a step ahead. And I think that can buy you a lot of bandwidth with the crowd.
1: Yeah. How close have you ever been to quitting? <laughs> Are you trying to tell me something? Is there? No. Uh... <laughs> no, it, you know, I think you're probably the 145th comedian I've talked to and almost everybody either either during the interview or before or after the interview they tell me a story of when they almost quit. And it seems like that's another rite of passage that you have to get to the almost like being an alcoholic. You got to get to the lowest point of your life before you finally come out of it and become better
0: yeah I don't know I feel like I've never been like I never want to do stand-up again I guess I feel like that's never really happened to me I feel like there's been moments where I've been like oh maybe I need to you know branch out more into like you know filmmaking stuff or video production or you know writing or things you know besides just focusing on stand-up which has probably been like helpful on on some level in the long run but like yeah to me it's sort of I don't know doing stand-up almost feels like like a lifestyle or a worldview I like it to me it'd be akin to asking like are you ready to stop seeing the world the way you see it and like I don't know I like seeing the world through the eyes of a comedian Mm -hmm. I think it makes it gives you like every conversation has a purpose. Every observation has a potential reward that there's like this constant sort of engagement with the universe in a way that's like, uh, what's interesting here? What's surprising about that? What can I do with this idea that might lead to laugh? And uh-huh. I think that's like just an interesting problem to be trying to solve all the time.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on that. When and how do your best premises come to you? I think probably the best
0: ones are via conversations with friends of mine, you know, people who are like interesting or smart or like, you know, provocative and like, you know, just sort of a lot of times going through that you know, of just having like a normal conversation and seeing if, there is a, if there's a moment where I get extremely animated or I think something's like really dumb or hypocritical or I have some point that I've made like five times before. And I'm like, if I keep making this point off stage, like maybe I, I need to talk about it on stage. So I think that's probably my favorite way to generate premises. Because also I think it reflects something authentic about you. If like I'm actually talking about this in a conversation off stage with someone who's just a friend of mine, then that seems ripe for like being on stage for being like the kind of thing that you're going to talk about. And people will be like, well, this seems like you, whatever else they think about it, they're going to be like, well, it seems like he actually means this or he's <laughs> a, a, aligned with who he is as a human being, which yeah. I think is always a good start for any premise. And then I think sometimes there's just ideas that won't like leave me alone. Like there's just like, something that just c- keeps coming back over and over again until like, okay, fine. And so just like, if you keep knocking on the door, I'll let you in and like try this on stage. So I think that that can be an interesting dynamic too.
1: Uh huh, uh-huh, For sure. And speaking of premises, we are at my favorite part of the show where it's called, is this anything where we each bring a, a joke or a premise or something to the table and we workshop a little bit. And since you're the guest, you get to choose who goes first.
0: Why don't you go first to see okay. see how the flavor works?
1: So I, I called an audible. I had one ready to go. And I called an audible because I watched part of your show today before we did this. And I think this one might resonate with you a little bit. So this one is, it's a pot joke. And I don't have it written down. So I'm, I'm trying to go from memory. I've done this on stage, but I rewrote it. and Or I rewrote it in my head that I thinks better. So, you, you know, you kids... The world may not be as good as you want it, but I tell you one thing that is fantastic for you kids is weed because they have made weed so good now. You've got hybrids. You've got, you got weed that can make you feel energized. You've got weed that can help you go to sleep. You've got everything that you could want in the world of weed. And, you know, when I was a kid, we only had two kinds of weed. It was mostly seeds and mostly stems. But there's one thing that the weed scientists need to dial in, and that is to make edibles predictable. Because when I take an edible before going to a party so that my anxiety is lowered, I always end up asleep on the dog bed and don't talk to anybody. And yet, When I take an edible, when I just want to get some sleep, I end up at two o'clock in the morning, rearranging everything in my refrigerator by the way it sounds when I chew it. And that's a very bad telling of it, but I went, I, making edibles predictable is kind of the add on there. And that's really the main focus of the joke. So tell me what you think.
0: Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think overall it's a little bit wordy. So I definitely like try to trim it down as much as you can. I think, I think just like the seeds and stems was to me, the first thing that, that sounds like a pop. So I would try to get to some pop as quickly as possible being like, yeah, you kids, you have like 40 different kinds of weed. Now it's amazing. When I was coming up, we only had two kinds seeds and stems, Yeah, you know, right there, get something quick that's sort of set it up. And then, yeah, I think, definitely a relatable thing of edibles and people not being able to predict them. So I think you'll get some, uh, you know, reaction of understanding from a crowd on that. And then I think it's just more like explaining an example of what happened to you when you took an edible that you couldn't predict and Mm -hmm. acting that out and, you know, sort of demonstrating it. And the more you can kind of like really get into character, perform what, what happened to you and what that was like. And then the chewing thing I think is funny just for the, the specificity, but like, then I think you've got to get into as a line in and of itself. I don't think it'll necessarily get a huge laugh, but then you've got to get into like, okay, what does each sound? What does each one of these items sound like when you chew it? Okay. What's the order that you're putting them in? Like, bring us into your mindset when you're high on edibles and rearranging your fridge this way. And let's get into that because it sounds pretty hilarious to like actually. <laughs> find out how you're trying to alphabetize things in your fridge or however you want to call that
1: yeah i was actually thinking about that doing more of an act out and getting you know okay you know starting with the celery, of course because that makes the loudest crunch and you know the last thing is obviously the salad dressing because can't chew it and you know stuff like that
0: good yeah, yeah yeah or two that's you know then you have to decide between i don't know rice and granola or i don't <laughs> know Any better example but like <laughs> like when you really start getting into a debate in your own head when you're high and then yeah. you just wind up eating everything in the fridge to solve the problem like i just ate them both and then i do not have to worry about it you know, Yeah, something like that but yeah and also i think you know edibles are out of hand and like people get messed up on edibles is like not a you know wildly like unique premise so i feel like the more you get into something that's about you and that only you could say the better the bit will be. Yeah. So that's why I like like I got so high on these edibles that I didn't expect to. I feel like I've heard bits like that before. I decided to rearrange every item in my fridge according to how it crunches. Now that's something that only you would say on stage. So yeah. like that yeah. to me is like there's value in that.
1: Yeah, and I was thinking about actually, you know, finding something in there that's been in there for two years and then trying to figure out my whole life. How many other things do I have laying around that I don't need? You know, just, you know, go down a total, total rabbit hole like you do, you know, when you're a little bit too far gone.
0: <laughs> totally. I mean, yeah. I think if you're rearranging the fridge while stoned, it definitely has to end with you just eating stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like the logical conclusion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Okay, well, thank you. What you got for me?
0: Well, this is kind of a good example of a premise that's just been like, over time keeps coming back to me and I'm still not sure exactly what to do with it. But I feel like basically like when I'm flying or buying flights, it says I'm at war with myself. Basically every time I have to travel somewhere, it's like two months in advance. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I'll take a 6am flight. If it saves me $12, that's totally <laughs> worth it. And then two months goes by and my alarm goes off. I'm like, I would pay $1,500 to snooze right now. I can't believe two months ago. Me did this to today me. And <laughs> that in and of itself is like gets like pop there's something there but like it needs more and i think the more i'm not sure how or why but is the that i'm in a war with myself that two month ago me is in a battle with today me two two months ago as me is like whatever i saved you money you're broke you kind of need that and today me is like i also need sleep and you need to stop like trying to be my mother about this shit and like well maybe the problem is your mother like we have the same mother what are we even (laughs) arguing about you know it's kind (laughs) of the more I can get into like explaining or articulating or acting out some sort of this battle between, you know, current me and future me, I think that's where the meat is, but I'm not sure exactly where to go with it.
1: Uh uh-huh. You've, so I relate to that hundred percent because I've done it and the 6am flights just suck. And you know, you could maybe go into, okay, I saved $12, but I spent $57 to upgrade my seat so I could stretch out and sleep a little bit. But then getting the whole inner battle between the two selves, I think you, you've really got something there because, you know, there's cheapskate Matt that just wanted to save some money because he wanted to be able to pay for his Netflix or whatever. And then there's the older and wiser Matt that's like, you know, you could have done a nine o'clock flight and yeah, I like it. I resonated with me immediately. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think the original premise is definitely like relatable. I think it's like one of these like, okay, where else in my life am I like this? Where else does this happen? It's Another scenario where these two sides of myself are in conflict. And so I think that's something I'm, I'm still exploring with it. But yeah, I think you're onto something also with the, yeah, you saved $12, but then you had to take a taxi instead of the train to the airport and that cost you $60. So yeah. like, we've lost $48 via your attempt to save money. So thanks a lot.
1: Yeah. And you could really go down the whole financial rabbit hole of, of every financial mistake you've made too.
0: Oh god, do we have time? <laughs> I'm staying <changing>. like <laughs> that could be my whole next special. Financial <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. mistakes I've made.
1: <laughs> if when you invested in jolt cola or something like that.
0: <laughs> Bro, I missed jolt. They were onto something. They would probably come back.
1: Yep, all the sugar and twice the caffeine, baby. <laughs> I knew somebody that invested in it, and she she just lost. She's invested a lot, and she lost. She it. was ahead
0: of her time. She yeah. was ahead of her time.
1: <laughs> yeah. Then all the monsters and Red Bulls come up, and yeah, it, it's funny. So I'm losing my train of thought, and I did not have an edible. Yeah, it, it was just a long day. When you think about the comedians especially in your area, you get to see so many of them. When you see one that has spark, you know, you, you see the open mics and stuff like that, and you see that person that has, you know that there's something there. What advice would you give? Say you saw somebody tonight and they really, they you could they were raw, they were diamond in the rough, and you saw something. What advice would you give to that person in order to get them, Better, quicker.
0: I mean, there's the obvious stuff, which is just, you know, perform all the time, get as, up as much as you can. I think performing in different environments, don't just be at like the same place all the time. Like try to get on the road, try to do urban rooms, try to do like, you know, hipster rooms, try to do comedy clubs where there are tourists, you know, try like the more you kind of have different groups that you're testing material on, the better off you'll be. Um, and... Yeah, I don't know. I think sometimes it's like, it's difficult to give advice as a stand up because I feel like everyone's on like a different path. I think, you know, there's some people who do great crowd work and they can post clips like that. And that's going to, you know, be their path towards building a fan base. And then there's other people like maybe who aren't good at that, but like can write a one man show that's got this whole narrative arc that's really going to, you know, connect them with people. But that means, you know, workshopping it for years and going to Edinburgh and doing other things. You know, it's, I don't think there's just one right path. If there was one right, easy way to do it, then everyone would do it. And then it wouldn't be the right easy way anymore. I think, you know, and nowadays it's even like, what's the next thing where, instead of trying to do what everyone else is doing, what's something new that you can kind of innovate on or be the first person there to do that. Or, you know, I think also a lot of times, I think one thing that's tricky is as a standup, like a lot of times you're just like, okay, what can I say that's relatable to everyone in this room, which is great for standup. But then like a lot of times what works online, if you're trying to, you know, build an audience that way, the more you're a niche person who's like really into MA or candles or some, you know, sort of obscure topic that can actually really work well online. That's something to think about too, of like, okay, are you like a huge soccer fan? Are you a huge, you know, do you work in the tech world and have all kinds of insight into like apps or something like that and sort of be like, For your online stuff, maybe there's a way to kind of hone that and be like, okay, you're the funny person in blank and try to, you know, I think that can be a path that I've seen people who are funny comedians, but maybe getting lost in the shuffle, you know, in other areas, that's the way that they can kind of build a fan base online.
1: Do you think that all forms of stand-up comedy are valid as long as the audience laughs?
0: Yeah. I mean, who, who am I to say like, what you're doing is invalid? You know, it's like, you know, you know, I like, it, on some level it might start veering more into performance art. I'm thinking of like, you know, Andy Kaufman or something like this. Sometimes I'll be like, I'm not sure this is stand up anymore. This is feels like more like performance art or something like that. But like, I don't know if that makes it less valid in, it in any way. I think it's just, are you doing what you want to do? And are you getting the reaction from the crowd that you want to get? And if the answer to both those are yes, then, you know, good for you.
1: You know, it's, so this came up in another podcast I listened to. And the question that was posed was, if you can kill in rooms all across the country, are you a great comic? And the discussion went a couple of different ways. You know, in, on paper, yeah, you're making people laugh. But are you doing the same act every single room? Are you growing? Are you becoming a better version of yourself while you're on stage? Or are you just doing the same bits everywhere you go?
0: Yeah. Also for how long? I mean, if you're doing the same bits for like a year or two and honing it and releasing it as a special and then dumping all that material, like that seems valid if you're just doing the same exact set for, you know, like 15 years or something like that sounds like it'd be stale and kind of limit your growth as a, you know, performer and an artist, or whatever you want to say in that way. So I think, but yeah, I think it's bigger than like Bill Burr is obviously an amazing comedian. He can kill in all different kinds of rooms all over the country. So, like, clearly that's a good step towards being a great comedian. I don't, I think if you're just doing the exact same act for, you know, over a decade or something, that, that might be, uh, not the path to, to continued growth. But I feel like then you're getting more into not, it's not about the rooms or where it's more about you and how often you're like turning over material and how much you're growing and what you're doing as a comedian.
1: Yeah. And the funny thing is, the conversation went to, you know, you almost have to bomb sometimes to understand who you are as a comedian, what really works. You
0: you, And to develop new material, you know?
1: Yeah, because it's definitely not great the first time it comes out of your mouth. You know, very few times does a joke come out fully baked.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. I think things not working is an essential part of being a comedian. You just try to, like, as much as possible, put the, you know, have that experience in shows that are a little more, the stakes are lower. You know, you can kind of play around or, you know, produce your own show where you can do anything you want. And then, you know, when you are trying to impress people or performing at a club, that's where everyone else is operating at a high level that you're able to bring your A-game and really kill.
1: Last question. Did you watch Marin's special on HBO?
0: I haven't seen it yet, but it's on my list. I I definitely want to. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. It's.
1: uh, I'm like exactly his age. And it's, you know, it's fantastic. It's heartbreaking. it's, It's all of it at the same time. And I saw him in... Where was it? Grand Rapids? Like right before the pandemic, when he was working on the previous special, that was on Netflix. And I saw that whole thing before he put it out. And that was great too. But this one was just, it was a gut punch. It was so good.
0: Cool. Now I'm looking forward to watching it. It's definitely, I've been hearing about it. And I think these days, there's so many standup specials coming out that like just when you hear about it from multiple sources and people are buzzing about it, that's obviously a good sign. So yeah, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it.
1: Well, I tell you why, it was great getting to know you and yeah, I'm a big fan, you know, ever since I subscribed to the Rubes letter and then seeing this special, I just, I've watched it a few times and I really like what you did with it and I like where you're going. So appreciate you being on the podcast.
0: Oh, well, thanks so much. And thanks for the kind words and paying attention. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. And where can folks find you if they want to find you on the interwebs? All right, let's get into it. Matt a
0: Good starting point. My new special is Substance. It's on YouTube. So youtube.com slash Matt Watch Substance. I have a special before that called Feels Like Matt Ruby. That's also there. The newsletter that you mentioned, the Rubes letter, is at mattruby.substack.com. I also have another newsletter since this is a comedy-based pod. It's called Funny How, which talks a lot about like the art of stand-up comedy and just quotes people like bill burr and chris and comedy legends about like kind of advice on doing stand-up and yeah i guess that's it i'm on all the social media platforms and i post clips all the time and yeah just go to mattrubycomedy.com is probably like the easiest way to find out what i'm up to
1: excellent do you do you feel like instagram
0: i've been trying to be more pay more attention to it lately and in the past six months and really ramped up what i'm doing there yeah i think that's a good spot to Especially, you know, you if you're just more into the clips and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Whereas, you know, obviously I like writing too. But, you know, I think you got to meet people where they're at. Some people don't want to read a 10-minute newsletter. They just want a 30-second funny clip. So I try to cover my bases. But yeah, I mean, uh, Instagram is probably the platform that I enjoy consuming the most. So for whatever that's worth, you know, trying to be in the mix.
1: I'm the same. And it's it's just funny that you... And, you know, I've been purposely looking for stuff from you but every time I open Instagram it's you first (laughs) almost every time nice yeah so it's working take that Joe Rogan yeah Yeah. the algorithm's working well thanks so much for doing this It, it was really great getting to know you
0: awesome thank you for having me I really appreciate it